right. Good, good, good. Well, Happy New Year, everybody, as we're uh, looking forward to the new year this weekend. And uh, that's on our, uh, on our calendar anyway, on the church calendar. This is Christmas tide. We've recognized Advent, that's the beginning of the year, uh, on the liturgical calendar. And on Christmas Day begins Christmas tide, recognized by some portions of the church as 12 days. That's the 12 days of Christmas, where that song comes from. Uh, other portions of the church recognize a 40-day Christmas tide. So here we are. This is then, in that sense, this is the third day of Christmas. Uh, and so that's our sermon title this morning, The Third Day of Christmas. If you have the notes, I hope you can see on the top of the notes or if you can see on the screen uh, or if you have a pad, just uh, jot this down. God, fill in the blank, us. God, fill in the blank, us. I want to ask you to think about, and don't answer too quickly, I want to ask you to think about how would you fill in that blank, right? Like, and I mean really, honestly, like from the gut, how would you fill in that blank? Not your, I'm in church and it's on a Sunday and therefore I know the real, you know, the right answer to that question. I want to ask you just for a minute to reflect upon what might be um, your kind of real from the gut reflexive <coughs> answer to that question, even if that real from the gut reflexive answer to the question might be different than your, I'm in church and this is Sunday and I know the right answer for what, what goes in there, right? Like, so how would you honestly describe the relationship between God and us? What goes in the blank? What goes between us and God? What goes in that space, right? So here now we mean symbolically, what, what goes in the space between God and us? That's really what we're driving at here. So a few possibilities. Um, God judges us. Someone might reflexively answer that way. God despises us. God, right, God, God is angry with us, and that's why, you know, someone had to suffer or whatever. Um, if you ask Bette Midler a few years ago, she's saying God watches us, right? That's like God is some kind of creepy voyeur kind of image. Um, or, I mean, if we're just going to be honest, somebody might come along and say or feel God neglects us. I just, I just feel, if I'm honest, I just feel abandoned by God. Um, or someone might say God, God assesses us, right? Like God watches, he, he grades, he assesses, he, you know, he kind of keeps score. That's how I thought about God when I was growing up. Um, I, my God image was that God was like a big eye in the sky holding a hammer, right? Just watching everything I did, waiting for me to step out of line and smack, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so God assesses us. God against us. God forgot us. What would you say? What would you put in that blank? What do you say? Well, I mean, somebody's going to say, no, 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 it's not any of that. I, what, I, what I really say is, what goes in the blank is God loves us. I, I know that's what, that's what goes in the blank. God loves us. And, and I say in response to that, great answer. That's a, that's a great answer um, to that. And I'm, I'm happy that someone would, would put that word in the, in the blank. But then I would follow kind of with a series of questions and say, you know, okay, but what does that mean? I mean, the word love, you know, means so many things to so many people. 
you know, diff means different things to different people. It, the word love even means different things when we use the word love in, in different contexts. I mean, you could say, I love my spouse and I love Captain Crunch, right? Like, so, I mean, something's going on there in terms of flexibility of this particular English word, love. Someone said that in the English language, the word love does so many different jobs that someone needs to sit it down and teach it how to delegate. <laughs> um, so God loves us. Yeah, okay, great. But, but what does that mean? I mean, I mean, really, what does it mean that God loves us? Well, I said all that to say, let me tell you what Christmas means. This is the third day of Christmas, so we're still feasting on the riches of Christmas. Let me tell you what, oh, well, let me say it this way. Um, okay, yes, what Christmas means, but let me, let me tell you what Christmas reveals Right? That's a little bit stronger way. I want to tell you the mind-blowing good news of Christmas. Because Christmas, and the Christmas story, in fact, tells us exactly how to fill in that blank. Christmas tells us exactly what goes between God and us. So we don't have to wonder anymore. And Christmas tells us, gives us this answer as a matter of history. In other words, this is not a matter of theory. This is not a matter of doctrine. This is not even a matter, this is not even a matter of religion. Not, not really. This is history. We have to remember that, that, that Christmas is a, a festival, a celebration, a marvel of history itself. And this is history. This is history that tells us what goes in that blank space between us and God. Ready? Here you go. Here's what Christmas tells us. Christmas tells us what goes in the blank. It's this. God with us. That's what Christmas tells us. And that is unexpected. That's unthinkable even. It's just not how we assume things are or could ever work or could ever be between humans and God. We'd never, we would never believe that it could be like that close, that clear, that straightforward, that good. It just, it just sounds too good to be true. And like what all of us, at least what we think we know, if something sounds too good to be true, then it's probably not true. And so there's something on the inside of us even that pushes back, I think, even a little bit against that flatly stated, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, that as reported by the evangelist, there's something that pushes back, I think, a little bit against just the simple, pure embrace of that reality that Christmas reveals to us. And we do, man, we do, we do push back, at least to a certain degree on a certain level, against the, the full embrace of Christmas. That is this sense of reality of Christmas. I mean, even us, even folks like us who sing the songs and Got the nativity scene in the front yard and all of that and all the traditions of the Christmas season. But deep down inside, I think for many of us, maybe, maybe even more than we overtly recognize, there's something within us that's still kind of pushing back, still kind of resisting, still kind of insisting that it can't be that good. It can't be that simple. It can't be that straightforward. In fact, this, this God with us is so unthinkable and so unexpected that we continue even for 2,000 years, man, so far. We continue to create these big, elaborate, complex 
systems that are designed to achieve from our end of the us and God relationship what Christmas undeniably reveals that God has done totally from God's side. See, religion, religion assumes that the reality of Christmas, God with us, religion assumes the reverse. Religion assumes, well, yeah, us with God if we da 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 That's kind of the basic logic of religion, at least the, you know, the industrial complex religion, I mean. Us, well, sure, us with God when we, and then, the, you know, then we... Just finish the equation on out from there. See, religion gets it backwards and adds these truckloads of qualifiers and conditions. Oh, yeah, you can, be, you can be united with God, sure, if you do this, this, and this. Or, and, and if you believe this, this, and this. And if you say or pray or confess or whatever. I mean, it's just all this stuff. Oh, yeah, sure, you can be embraced by God um, when you achieve this and this and this level of, you know, whatever, and on and on the list goes. See, religion insists that it has to be qualified somehow so that they can then tell us what the qualifiers are and they can then secure their place as the God brokers for humanity. That's kind of the industrial complex of religion. Religion wants to, wants to have its say and introduce all these conditions so that it can then be reinstated as the great gatekeeper of access to God. But, but history itself, Christmas itself tell us, tells us that it, that's just not the reality. Christmas tells us God with us, period, full stop. God with us. Even, even in our darkest time, even in our most desperate time, even in our lowest of lows, even in a pandemic, God with us. He is Emmanuel. That's his name given to him by the prophet Isaiah. And it means God with us. Let's look at it. This is from Matthew chapter 1. Verse 22, all this took place, he says, to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, now he's quoting from Isaiah. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then, and then, of course, this is the beginning of Matthew's story, telling of the Jesus story. So then Jesus grows up, and he goes into action, teaching, preaching, healing, doing all the things that we're familiar with, and all along the while, revealing to us what God is actually like. And then we, we learn from him that not only is God with us, but we learn through putting together the totality of Jesus' ministry and teaching and so on. Not only is God with us, but God is for us. God is with us, and he is for us. And that is just too much for us to take in, right? Think about it. Jesus embraced the outcasts. 
He shared meals with despised, you know, tax collectors and people who were frowned upon or shunned, um, otherwise shunned. Jesus, he touched the ostracized lepers. He freely granted forgiveness of sins. Just, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> um, he, he pronounced people who were considered religiously, like, unclean. He pronounced them clean. Now you're clean. <laughs> um, instantly, completely, freely. And on and on that, that kind of list goes. And, and, and again, God with us. And, and, and the story is telling us this, this, is, this is what God is actually like. From God's side entirely, Christmas tells us that God is with us. And then the story unfolds in the life and ministry and personality of Jesus and reveals to us what God is actually like. Through his pattern, his life, his teaching, and so on. And, and of course, as the story unfolds, as told by all of the evangelists, all of that God generosity, all of that God largesse as practiced and preached and taught by Jesus, all of that freely given goodness of God, well, there were some people who didn't like it. And eventually, long story short, got him killed. You know, there, there are always people who want to guard the status quo of a very tightly regulated supply of God. You know, there's always people who want to guard that. And sometimes these people can be ruthless. Um, and sometimes... Sometimes that person can even emerge from somewhere within ourselves, you know, regulate our, you know, surely the God supply has to be regulated some way, somehow. And so all of this, back to Christmas, Christmas itself uh, reveals the fallacy in all of this kind of thinking. God with us, completely, entirely accomplished, done from God's side. And so once again... We are, I think in a good way, slammed in the face, whacked on the side of the head <laughs> with this historical reminder that actually God is with us. And then as embodied in Christ, we realize God is for us entirely. Now, in the Bible, and I'm thinking about the New Testament here in particular, the various writers of the New Testament, of course, um, use all kinds of language and images to, to try to describe this giant, big, beautiful reality of what God has revealed in and through Christ, just almost stretching thought to its farthest edges and stretching language as far as it can be stretched. It is, a, it is a unexpected, wild, and crazy reality that no one was prepared for. And so they seem to be you know, stretching their minds, stretching language to really try to get at the contours, the expanse of this reality that God has revealed in Christ, that we have been embraced by God in this totally, completely one-sided way. And there's several words that come to mind in that category, but one of the words that I want us to focus on this morning is the word adoption. It's, it's one of the words used uh, by New Testament writers to describe, 
you know, like what in the world has happened to us. Um, now that Jesus has come and revealed God's love for us so vividly and unmistakably and undeniably, how in the world can we describe this? You know, that's kind of like apparently the question in the background. And so the New Testament writers writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit use all kinds of language, all kinds of images, all kinds of metaphors to describe this, what is ultimately an indescribable reality, this reality, again, in some that we have been embraced by God, God with us, God for us. And some of these images are more familiar to us than others, I think, just again, based on my sort of experience and observation. There are some words that are that are kind of, I think, familiar, and, and I don't want to say comfortable necessarily. They're all wonderful words. Um, but like I think about a word like redeemed, that's a, that was, to me, falls in the category of a little bit more common word in our language and our thinking. And it's a great image that God has redeemed us. That's a way, a great way of saying what God has done in Christ. It's a great image. And of course, the, 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 the go, the good to go way back in terms of the word redeemed, it goes back into the ancient history of the Jewish people where God rescued them out of Egyptian slavery and set them free to be um, their own free people in, well, ultimately in their own land and and all of that. And the word that's used to describe God's action in that Exodus story uh, is redeemed, that God redeemed them. So he, he liberated them out of slavery and set them free. And so the New Testament authors use that same word now to describe us, what God has done for all of humanity in and through Christ. And that's, that's a huge, beautiful Image And so that, that word redeem seems to be, again, in my sort of estimation, seems to be a bit more commonplace in our own speech as we talk about, you know, faith and so on. Another word that may be a bit more familiar is the word justified. And that's a, a great word that appears to have been originally like a family term, like a, a, a term that was used to describe the people who are in the family of God. Those are the justified, you know, that's kind of the way the word was was used, uh, and then it came to be, you know, to describe someone who was, you know, like almost in a legal sense, someone who was, you know, not held guilty before God, like a law court type of term. So you have in the word justified kind of those two fields of, of meaning. And I said all that to say, but then, then, okay, so redeemed, yes, that's beautiful, that's great. Justified, that's beautiful and great and rich with meaning. But then there's this word, adoption, hmm. that we have become, that we are now the adopted sons and daughters of God. And all these images work, all these words work, they all have something important to say, but I just want to take our time, you know, today, just to take a moment and try, if we can, to enjoy what's unique and rich about the use of the word adoption to describe what God has revealed and accomplished in Christ. And it, it stands out, I think, I hope, to show that this word adoption stands out as distinct from other biblical descriptive images. So to try to get at the uniqueness of adoption, let's go back to those other words, right? Like the word redemption, redeemed, um, 
it later came to be used in the slave market, in the slave trade. And the idea would be that someone would pay the price to buy a slave and then give that slave their freedom. And that act was called redemption. Um, and so it kind of has a ring of commerce to it, right? Like, like there's something of value, there's a price to be paid, and the price to be paid gains the thing of value and all that. So we, we get that. We understand economics, right? And so, so that image is, is rather, I think, accessible for us because of its exchange economic kind of undertone. And, and then, then the word justified, at least in the law court sense, that too kind of works for us and is familiar and accessible to us. We understand the courtroom and law, and we might even have an imagination of a, a judge wearing a black robe and having a, you know, a large oversized wooden gavel, you know, that whole, that whole image, guilt and innocence and laws and prosecution and so on, and then someone is declared not guilty by the court. They are now justified, you know, by this court of law. So that image is accessible and familiar to us, but adoption, now for some of you, the world, the thought world of adoption is is readily available and part of your life experience or the life experience of someone close to you. But for many people, at least, we are less familiar with that word. I mean, not, not that we don't know the word, but in terms of the, the, like, the embodied experience of adoption. So with that said, let's, let's take a run at it for a little bit. Let's, let's define adoption in this way. Adoption. It is an act of generous love through which an orphan becomes a beloved and embraced child. Now, you know, when it comes to adoption, we might think of, like in our culture, we might think of the long technical legal process of adoption. But, but that's, that's not the part that the biblical writers are thinking of <laughs> when they evoke the image of adoption with reference to what God has done in Christ. When the biblical writers use this word adoption, they're giving us the image of the transformation of relationship, the transformation of soul that occurs with adoption. That is the transformation from, well, I use the word orphan, to beloved and embraced child. Now, just think about that image, and let's just kind of walk around it <laughs> a little bit and look at it from a few different angles. Consider the following observations. There's nothing that this orphan can do to deserve adoption. There's nothing this child can do to earn adoption. Nothing. This child is powerless and without resources to secure her own adoption. Moreover, from the adoptive parents' side, the adoptive parents, right, don't require anything of the child in order to pave the way for her adoption. That is to say that adoption is an act of sheer, magnanimous, one-sided grace. It 
plain and simple, it's, it's an act through which a child, an orphan of some sort on some level, is transformed, heart and soul, mind and body, transformed into a beloved and embraced son or daughter who suddenly now has a family, a place, who suddenly has doting parents, you know. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that the old spiritual, I'm not sure the title, I just know the, the refrain, the lyric, and I, I assume this is the title, but the lyric that's repeated throughout the song is, um, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And boy, when you hear someone really sing that song with passion, it's just a gripping, a gripping thing. You know, what is it about that lyric? Why does it grip us? Why does it say so much? Sometimes I feel, you know, like a motherless child. It doesn't even make sense, right, on one level. I mean, yet it speaks to us somewhere deep on the inside, right? I mean, we all know there's no such thing as a motherless child. I mean, to be a child, by definition, is to have a mother. That's how a child becomes a child. It's how a mother becomes a mother. So on one level, there's no such thing as a motherless child. And yet, at the same time, we all know something about what's being said in that phrase. There's, there's more to having a mother than simply being born. There's a sense of connection, a sense of safety, a sense of warmth, a sense of, you know, place, belonging. All of that is the expanded meaning of being a mother, and it's also the expanded meaning of being mothered. And that is what's being grieved in this old song. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child losing all of that, the belonging, the place, the safety, the that. Having a sense that all of that is missing in my life. That's what's being cried out in this old song. No sense of connection, no sense of safety, no sense of warmth, no sense of place. In other words, it is an old song that grieves out feeling like an orphan. And it is that sense that adoption heals. Adoption transforms that experience inside and out. That's something like the richness of this word adoption being used in the context of Christmas. Let's look at one example. This is from the writings of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8. Let me read this section and we'll see what to make of it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we might also 
be glorified. But here's that word, adoption. And the Greek word here, and this is really compelling, the Greek word here translated for adoption is actually a, a compound word that comes from two words being meshed together. The word for son, as in child or offspring, and the word for God. So, I mean, adoption is the right translation, but, but if you wanted to kind of be like, you know, woodenly literal, it would be child of Godness. Child of Godness. You've, you've received the spirit of child of God. You've received the spirit of child of Godness. Look at that. That's, look at what he's saying here. You have received the child of God's spirit. And so now, having received that child of God's spirit, we cry back to God, Abba, Father. Like for real, putting voice to the spirit that has now inhabited our lives, Abba. It's a, it's a Hebrew word for father that linguists tell us probably kind of like emerged from baby talk. Abba, Father. So it's a very intimate reference to God as Father. It's that one-sided. It's that warm and nurturing. That's what's being described here. It's, it's all that, that childlike. And I mean, you understand, we have received, we've been given the spirit of child of Godness so that even when we cry, Abba, Father, even that cry emerges from the Spirit of God. It's so incredibly God-sided, everything that Paul is describing here in this new life of ours. In fact, he, he even gives us, I think nicely <laughs> in this passage, he gives us some contrasts so that as we think about what it is he's trying to say, we can rule out certain possibilities um, in the process of driving at our, uh, 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 attempting to understand uh, this relationship that he's describing. He gives us some things we can rule out, like, right? Like, so for example, he says, you know, you're not, what you're not is you're not a slave of God. You know, you're not strictly, you're not, you're not even, let me just say it this way, you're not even strictly speaking, you're not even a servant in God's household. A servant, right, is, is constantly evaluated based on their performance. A servant better earn his keep or he's out of here. That's, that's the, the, the proposition for a servant. A servant is expendable. A servant, being a servant is a transactional proposition. There's a plus minus evaluation that's always going on for a servant. And, and as a servant, if you don't keep that plus side balanced with the minus side, then, then guess what? You can expect a renegotiated relationship. That's the nature. That's the reality constantly hanging over the head for a slave or a servant or an employee. It is a cause for fear, anxiety, uncertainty. And so in that paragraph, look exactly once again, the Apostle Paul writing here is also ruling out fear. He rules out you're not a slave. He rules out fear. This is not a context of fear. You are rather children of God, sons and daughters, and then he expands that, and therefore heirs of God. And scandalously, I insist, he says, you are joint heirs 
with Christ. <laughs> Fellow heirs of God with Jesus himself. Now, if that weren't written in Holy Scripture and someone made that claim, I suppose that someone would charge them with just going too far. You've just jumped the shark on that one, you know. You can't say that, and yet there it is. You are sons and daughters of God. In fact, he's making an implication here, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> it's astounding. It's astounding. Christmas means God with us. And then as the Emmanuel embodied and lived out the image of God, we see not only is God with us, but that God is for us. We have been embraced by God, adopted as his very own, dearly loved children. You're totally loved. You're totally embraced. There's nothing to prove because Emmanuel has come. That's adoption. I want to give you, just as we, just as we conclude this reflection, I want to give you one image from Second um, Samuel chapter nine. Um, Saul is, of course, the first king of Israel. King Saul, and he had a son named Jonathan. And then Jonathan had a son with a really great name. Once you hear his name, you never forget it. King Saul's grandson, his name was Mephibosheth. If you were here in person with me, I would say, say that with me, Mephibosheth, without getting tongue-tied. It's a great name. Uh, now, in the ancient world, and not just in the ancient world, but even in the modern world in many places, uh, regime change is a very dangerous and perilous and often bloody affair. In most places, at most times in history, that is. Regime change is dangerous. And this is especially true if you're on the losing end, um, the outgoing end of regime change, a change of, of power. And so Mephibosheth was definitely in that place. He was on the downside, on the outgoing side, of power when King Saul went out of power. King Saul and his son Jonathan uh, were killed in battle on the same day. And Mephibosheth was a young child at the time, five years old, very young. And when word of the death of Mephibosheth's father and grandfather, King Saul, uh, when, the, when word of that reached Mephibosheth's nurse, she instantly knew that things were about to get ugly. Uh, for the child and so she picked him up and started to run for safety into hiding you know trying to get to a to a safe place and apparently as the story is given to us apparently during all that she dropped young Mephibosheth and or he fell, fell or she fell onto him or something and the result was from that day on Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet something happened to his feet that he never recovered from so he's five years old now crippled in his feet and from that day on, living in exile, in fear, in hiding, because he is the grandson of the previous king. This is, of course, when King David comes into the throne. So think about Mephibosheth. Here he is. He's got royalty in his veins, and his feet are crippled 
He's in hiding. He's in exile without a home, no home, no place, crippled feet and royalty in his veins, feeling like, maybe feeling like, a motherless child. Maybe you've been there. Maybe I've been there, feeling a little bit like that. Sometimes, sometimes you may feel like you don't have a home, kind of out of place, looking around and thinking everybody else feels perfectly in place, but me, not me. I feel out of whack, out of joint, out of sorts, like I have no place. My feet, <laughs> my feet are okay, but nevertheless, I do feel crippled in some ways. Sometimes I feel crippled in my ability to keep the promises that I've made and that I want to keep, right? Like, so you may not feel crippled in your feet, but crippled in other ways. Sometimes I, I cave in to impulses that I'd prefer to reject. We've, I think we can relate to Mephibosheth. We feel crippled in various ways. Well, Mephibosheth lives in this way for many years, in hiding, in exile. And King David gets this wild and crazy idea one day to see if he can find any living relatives of old King Saul because he'd like to show kindness to them. Surprise, surprise, you know. Um, very generous, very beautiful thing. And so David asks around among the people in the palace um, if anybody has any knowledge or, you know, awareness of any such people. And there's a man named Ziba who was a servant of King Saul's, who's now a servant uh, under David's regime. And he says that he knows about Mephibosheth, where he lives and all that. And so David sends messages to go out and find Mephibosheth and invite him to come to the palace in Jerusalem to see David. So now think about this. So in the palace, King David is asking around about and now talking about Mephibosheth, because Ziba has made David familiar with Mephibosheth. So he is on the king's mind. And meanwhile, think about Mephibosheth. At that very same moment, while he's on the king's mind, he is in hiding, maybe in a cave. I imagine it in a cave. But for sure, he's in, let's just say, he's in a strange, unfamiliar place. He's not at home. He's not with his own people. He's alone in a cave, eating his gruel, <laughs> feeling abandoned, feeling like he's been forgotten. God, how could you allow this to happen to me? God, why me? God, why aren't you doing something about this? Why have you abandoned me? That's what Mephibosheth is feeling and thinking while at the very same moment, the king is talking about him, thinking about him, looking, searching, seeking him out. That's beautiful. And I said that to say, I, I want you to know that whatever your situation is or whatever your situation becomes going forward, I want you to know that Christmas tells us that you are on God's mind. You are on his mind. He hasn't forgotten about you. He has not abandoned you, no matter what. 
that's what Christmas reveals to us about the heart of God. Even in our darkness, even in our darkest moments, even in a pandemic, God is with us. And so David sends these messengers to go out and find Mephibosheth and invite him to the palace. And here we pick up the story, 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, don't be afraid, for I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He bowed down before David and said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Ah, doesn't that just break your heart to hear those words? So this is the moment, and I want you to notice, I want you to notice what's not in this picture. Notice that there's nothing that Mephibosheth has done to deserve this generosity from David. This is a beautiful picture of grace. This is a beautiful picture of what adoption looks like. It's pure grace. He hasn't done anything to deserve it. This is not a merit system. David's not keeping score. This is pure grace grace. See, again, I think there's something deep inside of us that almost insists that if there is a God and we're going to have any sort of relationship with him, then there's got to be some kind of requirement on our part to meet some standard or clear some hurdle or earn enough points or some kind of something like that. Um, But notice none of that is in this story. Adoption is not based on a point system. It's an act of sheer grace. Let's keep reading. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, And shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, will always eat at my table. (laughs) Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Look at that story, would you? He was crippled in his feet. He moved to Jerusalem to live in the palace. And then as the story concludes, the writer Storyteller feels the need to remind us at the very end (laughs) that Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet. Why do you reckon that is? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because it stands as a reminder to us that when God restores, um, 
God's restoration is a continuation of the story rather than, strictly speaking, a reversal of the story. Um, That is to say that when we experience pain and pitfalls in life, God's restoration is usually not a reversal. It's, It's actually better than that. God, rather than reverses our pit, rather than reversing our pitfalls, He restores our pitfalls. And restoration is always better than reversal because it retains the element of that heart-wrenching gratitude for where we've come from. So, for example, the Bible says that Jesus still has the scars in His wrists from crucifixion. Why is that? It's because Resurrection didn't undo Jesus' suffering and death. Resurrection means that Jesus' suffering and death doesn't have the last word. And there's a difference. Resurrection doesn't mean that suffering and death didn't happen. Resurrection means that suffering and death doesn't have the final say. And there's something in that for us. We're a lot like Mephibosheth. Pain and failure has, in a sense crippled us in various ways in our lives, emotionally perhaps, through fear or inferiority, maybe guilt cripples us. And often there are these reminders in our lives of, of our past that stir up our pain, you know. Um, and sometimes we get these reminders overtly and obviously, and sometimes these reminders just emerge from within us. But we do get these reminders that we are and have been crippled in various ways. And so this adoption that we're talking about, this doesn't mean that heartbreak doesn't happen. What adoption means is that heartbreak in our lives doesn't have the last word. So here's Mephibosheth, and for the rest of his life, when mealtime comes around, he limps in some way into the king's dining room with his crippled feet. And he approaches the table And he sits down in the king's tablecloth, drapes over his lap, and covers his feet. And he looks across the table at the king, and he knows that he's loved. He has a place. He's safe. He's at home. And he's loved by the king. That is a picture of adoption. That's a picture of grace. And that is one of the gifts of Christmas. And so here on the third day of Christmas, I want you to know that you are a beloved and adopted daughter or son, child of God. And it's all God's doing. Amen. Let's pray.